you're about to hear is the fusion of entertainment and enlightenment. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Hello, America. I think we are going to have one of the most important and interesting uh, conversations that I think all conservatives need to have, all Americans need to have. But I think all conservatives, for sure, because there is something afoot in the conservative movement. And we have to decide, who are we? Where are we headed? Are we headed to some new uh, refounding, something that is taking our cornerstone of life, liberty, pursuit of happiness and, and basic Bill of Rights kind of ideas and putting a new cornerstone in? A lot of people say, yes, we're not going back. So Rob uh, Amari is the author of Tyranny, Inc., and I really like So Rob. He's been editor of the New York Post, then I think he was the editor uh, for the op-ed page at the Wall Street Journal, uh, which is very, very conservative. Uh, and he's written a new book, and I'm reading it, and I'm like, okay, I agree with the problem, I agree with the problem, I agree with the problem. And then I come across a line that says, uh, the early model that was laid down by progressives like Woodrow Wilson, do I need to read any more? And so I thought, I, I really should get Sorab on because uh, we got to talk about Woodrow Wilson. So we're going to do that in 60 seconds. If you don't believe me when I say everything the Fed's been up to is leading us down the primrose path towards a digital dollar, uh, something that will allow the government to do whatever it feels like to the value of your money, then at the very least, you should get on Goldline's email list and check out the articles that they have on that subject. Yeah, uh, it's coming, and it's coming probably faster than you think. All we need is an event, and this government will seize that dollar. It will collapse, and uh, their solution will be a CBDC, a central bank digitalized dollar, which will take all control of your money away from you. In these uncertain times, having something tangible feels kind of like a lifeline. Goldline, as always, has an offer that is hard to pass up. Uh, for every 50 of the two-ounce silver maple flex bars that you purchase, they're gifting you a hundred of the one-ounce silver. I'm sorry, the one-gram silver mind your business bars for free. Just a heads up, it doesn't apply to IRA orders. Time and time again, Goldline has been the beacon for those that are seeking stability in these unstable times. Call them now, 866-GOLDLINE, 866-GOLDLINE, or goldline.com. Now, Sorab, not often do I have a friend that says, you know, Woodrow Wilson was great. <laughs> uh, but I'm making the exception with you. And I, I really want to go through uh, your book. I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed reading it. Well, thank you for having me back, Glenn. I'm happy to talk about old Woodrow. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, first of all, outline the problem that you see. Yeah, sure. Uh, it's a problem of economic coercion that ordinary people face in daily life. We as Americans, but especially as the conservative movement, in the last two generations since Goldwater Reagan, mm -hmm. have come to think of coercion and unjust coercion as only what government does. In recent years, we've come face to face with a new mode of 
of coercion, which is either directed exclusively from the private sector, from from large corporations, banks, etc., mm-hmm. or some combination of those types of businesses in collusion with government. Correct. So there are really like big headline grabbing cases that I talk about in the book, like, um, you know, the censorship of the Hunter Biden story by Mm -hmm. Twitter and Facebook, where I was at kind of the eye of the storm when that happened. And I came and spoke with you on the show about it just as it was unfolding. Um, And the the debanking of people who are, you know, whose political views aren't acceptable to the liberal left. Et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, but there are also more less visible kinds of this, right? So, for example, and this will get us into the weeds, and I won't go too far into the weeds, but the use of commercial arbitration in the workplace. Just to give one example, arbitration is good. It's a kind of a neutral mediator comes between two merchants of relatively equal bargaining power. They agree not to go to court if they have a dispute, but to privately resolve it. That's fine. That's been around since 1925 with the Federal Arbitration Act. But in recent decades, increasingly workers' complaints are corralled into these types of courts, privatized courts, where like Ernst & Young or Bank of America get to set the rules. And you as the worker are far less, you don't have the same bargaining power where you can say no to this or dispute this. And it means that you can't vindicate rights that you otherwise have. I don't know, like the Fair Labor Standards Act or whatever, whatever kind of economic rights you might think of become blocked. And so that's the problem. I, I talk about the kind of high headline grabbing cases like Amazon, you know, making a lot of money out of the pandemic because mm-hmm. they were deemed essential, whereas lots of small businesses weren't. And then oppressing their own workers and their kind of hellish Dickensian warehouses. I talk about those, but there are, much of the book is about these less visible kinds of private coercion, where, for example, uh, the Sackler family of notoriety associated with the opioid crisis was able to use the coercive elements of U.S. bankruptcy law to shield their assets for, from, from states and from hospitals, from insurers and ordinary Americans who had been harmed by the opioid crisis. So I just suggest that and here where the, the kind of the bit that you mentioned about Woodrow Wilson comes in, that conservatives used to actually be more attuned to this problem. In other words, Wilson was not the only one. There was a kind of tradition in the GOP, figures like Teddy Roosevelt, then especially after the New Deal, figures like Eisenhower and Nixon, who recognized that there, there is such a thing as private tyranny, and the way to take charge of it or to tame it is by greater democratic control and sort of political response to giant market actors that otherwise get to set their own prices, their oligopolies, so that their prices that they set, what they, how they treat their workers and stuff is not that kind of free market, you know, Arcadia, that paradise that still was described by Adam Smith in the late 18th century. Things, the markets are much more complex, much more concentrated. So it requires greater state efforts to to, to protect us from being like debanked by by a large bank the way Nigel Farage was in Britain. So here's here's my question to you because this is the debate that I think um, we are happening uh, we're having now. Are we going to go back to a constitution that really hasn't been used in a hundred years? Um, and are we going to reset back to its factory settings? Or are we going to develop something entirely new? And the left has already made their choice. They are, mm-hmm. and I think you would agree with me, I, I think, um, that we are right now 
pretty a pretty fascistic uh, kind of country where the government is in bed with these corporations uh, and they're doing the bidding for one another so they can get things done. And if you play ball, then you get money and you get uh, all kinds of perks. If you don't play ball, you're out of business. Would you agree with that? Well, I, I actually do want to go back to our constitutional tradition. I would only suggest that our constitutional tradition is is more complex than some, I would say, doctrinaire libertarian free market types suggest. In other words, it, our constitution was shaped men like Alexander Hamilton, and it, it was a very much a, uh, a, a seen as a developmentalist state, right? Because they Hamilton and John Marshall very influential Supreme Court justice early on, they were determined that the United States wouldn't become like a backwater for Britain where they all they get is natural resources here and they treat us as a captive market for Britain's own industrial development and, in, and industrial manufacturing products. So they did all sorts of things like um, setting in place a first bank of the United States uh, to ensure a steady supply of credit that was disciplined and wasn't like kind of wild. They created, um, you know, internal improvements and import substitutions and tariffs and so on and so forth. This was all within, within the founding generation or within living memory of the founding generation. So the idea of a state that um, kind of takes charge of the economy for the general welfare mm. wasn't, wasn't alien to the founding generation. No, and of but- course, then you have like you have like the Jacksonians come around because then they noticed that that bank now had become the second bank of the United States had sort of become a vehicle for the wealthy. So Andrew Jackson waged war against it and sort of said, Hey, we need greater political control over these institutions that kind of, you know, can shape the lives of yeoman farmers and, and workers and so on and so forth. So it's, you know, because the economy and politics can't be so neatly ever separated, they never, the American tradition never thought of the economy as this autonomous zone of perfect freedom and competition. They realized that it's all bound up with what government does or chooses not to do. So, um, so, so here, I'm just but, arguing for a more complex reading of the American tradition. So here is the issue, and I think our founders came down to this. Where are the better, better angels uh, now in Google, Facebook? Uh, Apple, Uh, where are the better angels in Washington? Where are the better angels in the media? Where are they? Well, you know, unfortunately, I I would just say that the the founders could be pretty pretty cynical about human nature. And so they had, you know, as as, uh, Madison famously wrote, you know, if if men were angels, you wouldn't need government. But as it is, men, men are not angels. And so... Um, although Lincoln was obviously is the is the uh, better angels guy, um, he he expressed that as a sentiment to call forth you know the best of us. As, you know, was right, an inaugural but, but one. He was he was somebody that uh, was very very alone um, and really an aberration. You know the the man is an animal. He is an animal. And he is driven by many things at the very bottom. It's food and water and survival. But as he becomes more and more powerful, he is driven by money, power over people, fame. And those things all corrupt. They all corrupt. 
And our problem is, is that we have everybody, it seems, at the top has been corrupted one way or another. And the reason why it is corrupt, I believe, is because the government can be bought off by giant corporations and little people don't have the money to buy them off. So there's no representation. The 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 people who are running for office, they don't care what the people do. They'll say whatever they have to to get them to vote for them. But they don't actually care or like those people. They're not representing. They're representing themselves. So everything that is happening is a corruption of of us not putting the shackles on a powerful government, but letting, quite honestly, the Woodrow Wilson uh, administrative state where no one answers for the wrong, uh, just letting it grow. Yep. So, first of all, the bit that I quote from Wilson is just to say that during wartime, during World War I, whether you agree in the U.S. entry into World War I or not, he showcased that you can bring government, labor, management, businesses together to say, how do we build up the whole economy and put it on a war footing and, and you know, be able to deliver material to, the, to Europe and men and so on and so forth, logistics. And that model um, is now woven through the American tradition. It's, it's, and it finds its fullest flowering in the New Deal. But then, I, as, as I said, like Eisenhower went even further on some of this kind of logic of government labor workers and then management and business all coming together to make decisions for the general welfare of the whole, which again, because of that Hamiltonian streak in the, in the founding is not some obnoxious and weird thing. But the problem is that I, I think that the, the conservative movement has, because it's especially against his Goldwater Reagan says, I, I reject the administrative say all of that. Um, we don't, get take part in it we don't like actively try to shape it so it comes down like a it only comes down like a boot on our faces and that's un, the frustration is understandable i mean i'm not i'm no fan of vaccine mandates and i'm on the record about all of that but the you know the bottom line is that already by the 19th century we had an unbelievably complex economy and you had if you if left to its own devices you would have a very few people concentrating power and wealth to the detriment of the farmer, the debtor, the worker, and so on and so forth. And that complexity requires equally complex government because Congress can't like regulate the minutiae of the railroad business. It can just broadly say, well, the railroads should be this and that, but to deal with the railroad business at the granular level, you need, you need the complexity of the administrative state. You know, and I think a lot of conservatives who who say, well, I, I, this is just all unconstitutional. I don't want any of it. I invite them to take the first flight after the like, Federal Aviation Administration has been abolished or to, you know, to see what their neighborhoods are like once police is abolished. Right. All of this sort of service. Police. Nobody's <laughs> talking. Nobody in the conservative side is talking about abolishing police. Well, I mean, I, I hear about like, you know. FBI abolition. Oh yeah, now, I, I'm full. I I'm fully on board for that. Fully no, on board. So, so totally, I, I agree. In so far as the FBI has become this sort of lawless agency that's used to, again, Glenn, remember, I'm I'm on the right. I'm I, I know, I know, no, no, <laughs> right? no. So, like, so Rob, I'm not. I you know there are things that the FBI does besides persecuting, you know, Trumpians that is actually pretty valuable. So we're not prepared to give that stuff up. So even like Vivek 
Ramaswani, who's called for abolition of FBI, is calling for some other agency that would that would do the things that the FBI is supposed to do. So the point is that administrative state is, to some extent, unavoidable. It's a sort of extension of Congress's will in a complex society and economy. How do we deal with this complexity? Well, you got to delegate it to these experts. But if we don't take part in it on the right, if we don't try to shape it, and, and, and so, Rob, we are having the same conversation that our founders had with Hamilton. This is the same argument, and it will never go away because it's the original argument. Um, let me wonderful. just ask you this. It is great. I, I'm enjoying having you on. I hope you don't feel otherwise. I know, I know. Um, how do we avoid centralizing power to the extent that it, it causes us to be vulnerable to the bad guy grabbing the reins? Yeah, so I mean, I, I think that one way that certainly the book, which, as you can tell from what I'm saying, is heavily focused on the economy, is we need to promote a high wage manufacturing economy like we had, you know, in the mid century era, in the mid 20th century era. And we were told that, oh, it's inevitable. We all can only either do services or financial industry or right. these like apps, <laughs> like porn apps. Right. And we deliberately gave up our own manufacturing. Correct. So when you have a high-wage economy that's where workers are dignified and they're paid well and they're skilled, like, we did, again, we did in the mid-century era, they're not so at the mercy of the, of the government either. They're not so powerless. So what problem right now is we have a, a, high, a low-wage, high-welfare economy. What that means is not that the welfare net is all that generous, actually can be kind of miserly because you have to pass all these tests and so forth. But the point is that the typical worker, the working poor or like the bottom half of the country in many ways, in order to make ends meet, they have to rely on a high share of all kinds of welfare that doesn't come from their job. It comes from their taxpayer. And that puts you at the mercy, not just, of, of course, of the boss, who, because you're very vulnerable mm-hmm. anything that happens, you get fired. But it also puts you at the welfare, of, at, the, at, at the mercy of the welfare administrator and more broadly of the administrative state. So if we I mean, I think conservatives are coming around to this that, hey, we didn't have to ship off manufacturing to like Vietnam and China. Like, right. It's not like it's not like. You know, China's brutal labor laws and and right. horrible government are, are a gen, natural competitive advantage. It just that's it's just how they run their country, and we made a choice to ship off our jobs. So I think here where we can agree on is the importance of restoring a manufacturing high wage economy. Yes, um, limits on immigration help with that. Mm. But, you know, because so if, if there's always a, a reserve of poorly paid labor who's willing to do things for less, then that's you know, it weakens our, our workers. So, Rob, uh, um, uh, uh, Rami, <laughs> Ami, uh, that's for love of Pete. So, Rob. Amari, don't worry. Amari. <laughs> God, I don't know what's wrong with He can't so pronounce Rob. anybody's name. Don't I worry know, about it, so it's Rob. a block. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> the book is called Tyranny Eek. And so, Rob, I hope we continue our conversation. I, I disagree with you um, pretty wholeheartedly, but... I will fight to the death for your right to say it. And I hope we can have more conversations with this attitude uh, on the program with you. Thank you. You're very, you're very kind, Glenn. Thank you. you. Bye-bye. All right. Jeffrey wrote in about his experience with relief factor. He says, I just wanted to send in a message of thanks. I'm free of back and uh, lower back and knee pain, which means I can keep my auto detailing business going. And let me tell you, it was touch and go there for a while. Now I'm back to working hard and riding my motorcycle again. By the way, I'm 71. (laughs) 
Jeffrey, good for you. I mean, getting your life back, there's nothing better. Three-week quick start, only $19.95. It's a trial pack, not a drug. It was developed by doctors. Hundreds of thousands of people have ordered Relief Factor, and about 70% of them go on to order more. Call relieffactor.com, 800-4-RELIEF, 800-4-RELIEF, 1995, three-week quick start. It's relieffactor.com. Relief Factor. Feel the difference. 10 seconds, station ID. You know how to say it. You it's said it right times. there. Amari, Amari, Amari. I can say, you can it, say it a million now. times. Yeah, I know. It is a mental he's block. not on. It's a mental block. I hate it. <laughs> Uh, well, it's an interesting conversation. It's an important one on the right. It's happening for sure. Whether it know. is, it is not happening. I don't think it is happening at the uh, grassroots level yet. I think it is happening mm-hmm. in the upper echelons, and it is important that you get engaged in this conversation. The Glenn Beck Program. All right. You could hang a big pair of fuzzy dice from the mirror. And hope that that brings you luck. Maybe you put a rabbit's foot on the glove compartment or a four-leaf clover in the trunk. Maybe you dump some lucky charms in the gas tank. But I hate to be the bearer of bad news. At the end of the day, your car's going to break down. Doesn't matter. Yeah. The lucky rabbit's foot wasn't lucky for the rabbit. Now, was it? When you enroll with CarShield, you're getting protection plans that start as low as $100 a month. They're flexible, month-to-month coverage. Your choice of an ASE-certified mechanic. 24-7, coast-to-coast roadside assistance, complimentary towing, rental car options. You also get no long-term contracts. Car Shield administrators will handle all the paperwork so you don't have to. Maybe most important of all, considering the whole inflation problem, you get a price lock guarantee. Your price will never go up, no matter how many claims you file. It will never go up, even as your mileage on your car increases. Lock in your price today. Car Shield, 800-227-6100. 800-227-6100. CarShield.com slash back. Great time to join Blaze TV. It's blazetv.com slash Glenn. You can save 30 bucks off your subscription if you use the code will not be censored. This is the Glenn Beck program. We were just talking to uh, Sorab Amari. He is the author of Tyranny, Inc. And uh, it is, it's, I find it to have ideas in it that I do not agree with at mm-hmm. all. And um, people need to make their own decision. We are either going to uh, create what the left has created, except with our people in it, uh, which is not America. That's just not America. Or we're going to realize that the way we've bastardized this country, for instance, um, so Rob was talking about, you know, a central bank that they, that Hamilton wanted a central bank and Jefferson saw that it was always uh, only really benefiting the rich people. Well, yeah, that's what central banks do. And so we didn't have a central bank. We didn't have a first national bank of America uh, that was controlled by the government because that's what happens. And then under uh, Wilson, uh, we we establish a new central bank, the Fed. Is anybody here to say that the Fed is working out wonderfully? It's corrupt. 
It's absolutely corrupt. And it is now only serving the richest of the rich. It doesn't work because men have a tendency to go crazy with power and money. And that's what you're giving them. I mean, have you ever been to a zoning meeting before, a local zoning meeting? <laughs> have you been? Uh, I've never been to one. I mean, they sound oh, exciting, but oh, I've seen awful. the results of them. That's for sure. They're awful. They're, they are people who just want to control other people's lives. That's all it is. Mm. Not say like an HOA, right? <laughs> I mean, it's right. not a government institution, but that like that's how everyone feels. You're like, wait, what do you want to do with my property? I know. And like, yeah, there are arguments on both sides of this. And we talked about this at the beginning and that... There's also a lot that you guys agree on, particularly with the comes to the problem. I think, oh, yeah. you know, we, it was a little boring for you guys to sit here and recap the problem and agree on it for half an hour. So, you know, we, I know you focus more on, on what you don't agree on. But like this is the this is the central conversation going on on the right. And it's vital to, for people to think this stuff out. You know, the, the, we often talk about, OK, you know, for example, defeating Joe Biden in 2024, I, vitally important for anyone who is on the right. But what direction do you go to from there? And that direction is being formed. I mean, it's changing. It's clearly changing from what it was maybe in the Reagan era. A lot of people look back at that fondly. A lot of people recently have started looking back at that with big question marks or whether that those solutions can apply to today's problems. Here, here listen to this. Americans who devote decades of their lives to toil should be able to retire in dignity and safety, period. I mean, I hate to point this out, but in the Hebrew language, there is no word for retire. Now, I believe that, you know, I don't know if I'm ever going to retire, but even if I did retire, it would just be to do something else. You know, there, there's you're you're never stopping working. And that doesn't mean that you have to toil in the right, same right. job that you've been in. However, mm-hmm. what he says, a stronger labor movement with government backing could demand that large firms restore the older model of retirement based on defined benefits. Wait, the older model, you mean the one before the government took over Social Security? You mean one where you did get a golden watch? You you did work at a company. Not all companies did it, but you could pay in some of your salary and you could retire and the company would re- help you with the retirement. That model was destroyed by the federal government, creating yet another agency. And what did they do with our money? They don't have our money. Every dollar that I have play, paid in Social Security my whole life, I'm not going to see. I'm not going to see it. They don't have it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, some of this goes to the idea that like, the, the concept of a person going through their life, working really hard at a job that is trying to produce for their family, and at the end of that life, they're able to, let's call it retirement for the sake of this, but like, what is retirement? I mean, as you point out, retirement might be working at your church it might be yeah. it doesn't mean you just sit around at a golf no, course necessarily right like it's something that you want to do finding that thing that you want to do and that is something that i think we all aspire to we do when i look at the economy i think to myself man if i could just have the money that the government has taken from me correct over these years i could do that on my own i wouldn't mm-hmm. need government programs but hmm. instead they take them from me they give me a promise of a future iou with money that i know they don't have and then that's 
supposed to provide me some magical retirement. I don't yeah. see that as the path either. So, uh, you know, look, we can, uh, uh, that's the conversation though. So, I, mean, but, I think he's talking no, about a more well-designed version of this, but like, I, I don't, I, I just have no faith in people in government. No, they, they were talking about a, a more well-designed healthcare system. Look yeah. what happened. Yeah. You, you don't do it that way. It never works that way. Um, page 182, he says, there would still be pockets of individual wealth among investors and managers. We're not talking about full socialism, but owing to the more equitable distribution of the social income, there would simply be a little less money to go around for dangerous speculation and workers' organizations would have a little more money to counterbalance the power of the rich in politics and civil life. That's a little less and a little more, and it can go a long way towards taming to, to, uh, today's private tyrannies. It, it, it takes two to tango. Yeah. It's not just the private sector. You cannot grow the state you will end up the way every other country ends up. The secret to the American sauce was the smaller the government, the better. And by the way, if they just shut off the FAA tomorrow and all of those federal workers that are in the towers are fired and they can't come back to work, yeah, I'm not going to fly the very next day you destroy the FAA. But I have absolutely no problem flying uh, in the air the very next day if they've been allowed to hire those trained workers or had the time to train their own. I have no problem with the private sector flying an airplane, flying in, in safety. You know why? Because the market punishes any airline. It, if it has no backing from the federal government, it goes down, it goes down, period. There's nobody saving an airline. That's when they learn their lesson quickly. It's, it's interesting because I, this conversation is, I, I, I find conflict in this all the time. I mean, we look at these, the problems, you've talked about it in both Dark Future and The Great Reset, where... These companies are trying to go around. They've built a system that goes around some of the constitutional um, yes. protections that we've talked about for many, many years. And the government and loves the it. The government works with these companies. And so uh, the reaction on the right, I think, I think appropriately has been to say, okay, what can we find that we have in our, in our, yeah, in our toolbox to fight back against this? Some of those have been government uh, government actions that I think would have made me more uncomfortable five years ago than they do today uh, or 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And uh, we hear that from not just from all over the right right now, different versions of this, that balance of trying to figure out, as you've talked about in your books as well, how to push back against that is the defining uh, conversation on the right well, right now, it, it really, if you're a conservative, you just have to know how to define a conservative. And that is somebody who looks at all of the pieces on the table and say, and they say, this is outdated. This doesn't work. This does. Mm -hmm. This is worth saving. This is worth saving. And you get rid of all the rest. 
what what progressives want to do is take everything off the table and uh, and not look at what doesn't work and maybe double down on those things that don't work that's that's just insanity a conservative needs to look at the things that are working and the things that are not and in almost every case he used to be able to say the the uh, defense department but now it's been so politicized that I don't trust the Defense Department. You have to take them and look at them and say they no longer work. Now, can we build it back to a place to where it's not going to come become corrupt? Yeah, and you have a better chance of doing that than you do starting something entirely new that has a hundred different factors that you'd never know what was the factor that changed it and what factor didn't work we just have to decide who we are and who we want to be george washington said we did not replace one tyrant to replace him with another we did not overthrow the king just to have another king we're different back in a minute these days, if you want to spend a day down at the gun range, you better be prepared to take out a second mortgage on your house. Thanks to severe overregulation and our old friend inflation, ammunition prices are through the roof. And unfortunately, there's no end in sight. But still, you need the practice. So what are you going to do if a Chinese spy balloon appears over your house? I hope you can hit it with a slingshot. This is why you need Mantis X. It is a high-tech, easy-to-use system used widely by the military and helps you improve your shooting quickly. You attach it to your firearm, connect it with an app on your smartphone or your tablet via Bluetooth. Then, whether you're firing actual rounds or just dry firing, practicing, just aiming at anything, it will give you instant feedback on what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong and how to correct it. This is the key. 94% of shooters improve within 20 minutes using Mantis X, and I'm one of them. It's like having a firearms instructor right in your front pocket. Just as importantly, it's going to save you a ton of money. Start improving today. Get yours at MantisX.com. That's MantisX.com. This is the Glenn Beck Program. So mortgage rates uh, may hit 8%. Uh, that's good. That's really good. Um, no. This week, not. by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Up mm-hmm. from 7.26% for a 30-year fixed mortgage. Uh, it could go up to 8%. And the, you know why they're saying that they're going to have to raise the interest rates? I don't. Too many people are employed. Oh. Yeah. The job mm-hmm. numbers are just... Too, everything's too, too wonderful yeah oh that's Bel- believe it or not. for you believe it or not the labor market being as strong as it is now no one's comfortable raising uh saying we're not going to raise the interest rates anymore so they need to put you out of work so you stop spending money so they can spend money in washington that is honestly what they're trying to do that that's it that I mean, and this this is working for us, really. 
Is it? No, thank you. Hmm. <sighs> I, 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 I don't know where we go from here. Honestly, <laughs> you get to that point. At the end of the day, every day, I get to that point where you're just like, "What do we? What's? Where do we go from here?" You know, Glenn, it's going to be really interesting to watch this all play out. It is, isn't it? Isn't it? It is. It's going to be a really fascinating time to just yeah. kind of watch all this happen. Yeah, and uh, and uh, just can... sit here and just go, "Wow, mm-hmm. uh, who would have seen that coming?" Oh. We did, but we probably shouldn't say anything about it now. Uh, two more home insurers exit California uh, because there's new rules put in place uh, and uh, and new things, uh, uh, new rules about uh, fires in California. And uh, the insurers are like, you know, I, I don't think we can make any money in California. Um, nope, not going to do it. So two more insurers, which is going to mean that the United States is going to have to insure all of those houses. You know, they do that on the wetlands and, you know, near the right. beaches and everything else. Why? Why Why is the average American paying for the insurance on somebody's house that lives right on the water? Why? I, I don't know the answer to that. I think, you know, the, the, well, the, the stated answer would be, well, look, if the market did it, it would be too expensive. And so well, we, the government, have to do it. Well, you, know, you don't have to subsidize rich people's houses on the water. That's not something you have to do. Yeah, and some people aren't rich. It might be their home, you know, it might they've be, had yeah. their home forever there. Smaller percentage mm-hmm. uh, than I would argue. But yes, uh, it's not just an anti-rich person argument. Uh, Correct. You know, I mean, I, I, but I do think that uh, there is a, there isn't really a great argument for the United States government to say, hey, especially from the left, who are constantly the people pushing it. And also saying global warming is going to wipe out all these houses next mm-hmm. week. It's mm-hmm. like, well, how does that work? Why don't you just stop paying insurance for people whose houses are going to be underwater? Certainly disincentivize people sure would. By, by building new ones. And look, sure I, I think most people who do it would say, I will I will pay the extra insurance and, and it will be more expensive. And that's part of the cost of living. And maybe fewer people would choose to do that because of those reasons. And I don't know. That's what I thought the left wanted, right? Can I ask you a question? How do you run a hotel in America now? I don't understand. Uh, Maine is now forcing um, hotels to house immigrants. Um, How do you uh, hmm, how do you make money with that? I mean, you know, they're doing in New York. They're doing some really nice hotels. Uh, I'm not staying at a hotel that is filled with illegal aliens. Uh, I mean, call me a hater. No, they don't stay in your bed, Glenn. I mean, they, they are in separate rooms, I think. Yeah, yeah. No, uh-uh. No? No, not going what to. What if they're just on your floor? Like, you get no. up in the middle of the night, you might step on, on somebody, but... No. No? That's no. not okay? And if I'm a hotel and I'm told by the government that I have to do that, that's kind of like quartering soldiers, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> Third it's a Amendment violation? Like Third Amendment, kind oh. of. Mm. Uh, I'm just told that I have to do this now. Um Mm, no mm, that's an interesting yeah. you thought you seemed yeah. like you really thought about that answer i uh, i did i did i, I mean here's the course. whole thought process mm. Mm, no oh so you said the whole thought process out loud out loud that first yeah, time that was it wow, okay. hey you have a hotel it's a pretty nice one uh you're gonna have to house all these people and the government will pay you what we can mm, no no how, how how does that work how does that work in america because I can't figure that one out. The Glenn Beck Program.